At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud voice, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom, and when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. So, we are approaching the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Since January, we've been taking these snapshots, chapter by chapter, of Jesus' life and ministry here. And Jeff has asked me several times in our life group uh, throughout this, uh, this series, how or why I picked the given sections for a chapter uh, for a given week. Um, sometimes I had reasons, but uh, also I'll admit as I was planning for the series, sometimes it was just whatever kind of struck me as intriguing or interesting from that chapter. And there's so much in these Gospels that we could dig into, particularly in the later chapters as the chapters get longer. <laughs> and there's, there's more and more that could be covered. Uh, here in our second to last week, we are finally to chapter 15, and there is so much here. Jesus uh, has been betrayed by Judas handed over to the chief priests who despise him, abandoned by his disciples. He was questioned by the Roman governor Pilate, found, who found no fault, but gave in to the crowd's demands that he be crucified and replaced by the uh, criminal Barabbas who was set free. Jesus was mocked, beaten, scourged, forced to carry his crossbeams up to the hill called Golgotha. He was briefly helped along the way by a bystander named Simon because Jesus lacked the strength. And there, at that hill, he was nailed to the cross, hung to suffer the compounded torture of the nails in his hands and feet, the continual muscular strain, asphyxiation, and not to mention the continued mockery of those who are watching. When talking about the cross, we have a, a few tendencies that we often uh, will go to in the church. One thing that we might do is to avoid it. It's violent, it's uncomfortable, don't want to think about it or talk about it too much. Um, second, perhaps in addition to that avoidance, we may rush to spiritualize it, to, to, to cherish the cross. You think of songs like, um, oh, the wonderful cross, right? Or I'll cherish the old rugged cross. And In these scenarios, sometimes we can kind of zoom out and talk in generalities about the cross, why it it had to happen this way in order that we might kind of theologize and, uh, and make up uh, thoughts about it in that way and distance ourselves somewhat from the actual event. In a completely different direction, we sometimes uh, instead will uh, lean hard into the gory details surrounding the cross. And this is normally accompanied by kind of heavy guilt. Look at what you did, right? This morning, I want us to try to resist the urge to zoom out and theologize, but also to try to resist the opposite urge to make it all about us and our guilt and feeling bad about what happened. Uh, instead, I had an alternative, I think, 
that I want us to try to focus on some of the particulars of this passage. Namely, the cry, the curtain, and the confession, three C's. And to explore what they reveal about the nature of our relationship to Jesus, as well as the character of God on display uniquely in this moment in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, the incarnate Lord, forsaken and nailed to a cross. So let's start with that cry of Jesus on the cross. Lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, God incarnate, felt God forsaken. This whole moment is shrouded in drama. The skies have become inexplicably darkened during the midday. Some people have tried to rationalize how that could have happened, maybe a solar eclipse or an intense thunderstorm happening at this time. But whatever the means, the point is clear. A dark day has come. Grief is approaching. It's reminiscent somewhat of the plague of darkness in Exodus that also accompanied the death of a firstborn, right? And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first time in the gospel that Jesus has chosen not to pray, Abba, Father, but instead he quotes from the opening lines of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a prayer of lament, but also trust and hope in the midst of, uh, of trial. If you read on through uh, this, this psalm of lament, Psalm 22, there's, it waffles back and forth between this intense cry of lament and anguish, but also hope and trust. In verses 3 and 4, uh, it says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. And then verse 24 in particular says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but instead listened to his cry for help. This kind of biblical lament, it, it brings out this brutal honesty before God and articulates the depth of our hurt and pain, yet also relentlessly declares hope and trust in the Lord. But Jesus didn't get to the hope part. Right? He didn't have the breath for it. He says what he can say. It's a Intense cry of anguish and grief. Some spectators seem to mistake his cry as a, a plea for help from the prophet Elijah. Either they are mistaken or they are just poking fun at him. They maybe know exactly what he's saying, but he is, uh, they are just trying to, to mock him. And then he dies. Alone, humiliated, shrouded in darkness. All of this in some most mysterious and profound way for us. He gave all of this for us. I'd suggest that this cry, it reveals to us the weight, the depth of our sin, the reality of our broken nature. But like I said, let's avoid the urge to zoom out too quickly. Put aside maybe the theological question for a moment of what it means that Jesus bore all our sin on the cross past present and future. In a paradoxical way, when we rush to the universal part of that, we simultaneously jump to the hyper-individual part of it. What does God do with my specific sin? How am I forgiven? Uh, so I just, just put a pin in that for a second. Put it in your back pocket. Because I think there's something for us to understand here about the nature of our sin and the way it works in us and the cost of it 
that we need to grasp just here in the text. The current sins against him that Jesus is experiencing, that were inflicted upon him, were sufficiently intense to feel God forsaken. The lies spoken about him, the malice, the betrayal, the abandonment, the torture and violence, all experienced as many in the crowds mocked and jeered. People have, have felt forsaken and alone, experiencing much less. What Jesus went through was painful. It makes sense that he would give out a cry just with that experience. And people being able to mock and jeer at anyone experiencing that is a signal to us of how deeply sin can affect us, and it has affected us. Much more so when that person is innocent. Much more so when that person is the Son of God. We can be so warped and distorted in our sin that we don't recognize good when we see it when we allow our own self-interest and our own habits of sin and our own self-protectiveness to characterize our life, that it can so twist and distort us that we do not recognize good in front of us. Instead, if we do, we lash out at it, thinking it to be a danger to us. We so wound others and, and fight God continually in doing this that we, it's like we're hoping that we can claw our way to safety by clinging to our sinful self-interest. To the point that when God came in person to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that we chose to kill him instead. The natural conclusion for God to have made in that, in that event would be to forsake humanity. To throw us to the dog, so to speak. To be done with it. Faced with that decision, God instead chose to forsake himself. In Jesus' death, God had forsaken himself that we might finally see and understand the weight and depth of our sin and the depth of his love. And in Jesus' raw, heart-wrenching cry of abandonment, the veil is torn from our eyes so that we can finally see how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only Son Make the wretch his treasure. Speaking of veils being torn, flawless transition there. Next, we see that the temple curtain had been torn. Said to be completely torn in two, from top to bottom. It's an odd detail that's thrown in here because it's not as if the temple was visible from Golgotha. Again, I want to resist the urge to zoom out too quickly. We typically read this, uh, this little point here and we, we zoom out and, and point forward to the Holy Spirit. You know, we didn't need the temple anymore. Again, pin in it, put it in your back pocket. Let's just sit here for a moment with the text. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's all that Mark tells us. Why? What is Mark trying to show us? Uh, two notes. First, there's been a theme building in Mark since really chapter 11, uh, even much more so in chapter 13 and onward, of the temple system being found wanting. Jesus kind of critiquing what's happening here. In chapters 13 and 14 especially, Jesus repeatedly alludes to the coming destruction of the temple. 
It's one of the many things that was ruffling the feathers of the religious uh, leaders of the time. So the immediate message we might take from the curtain being torn would be this kind of alarming reality that God's presence has left the temple. In fact, the early church fathers commonly interpreted this event, the tearing of the, the, the curtain in the temple, as a warning sign of the impending destruction of the temple, just as Jesus had predicted. I think we can also see that the curtain torn reveals the depth of the Father's pain. The Son was not the only one who suffered here. The Father is deeply moved, and that matters. I read somewhere uh, that after the horrors of the Holocaust, there was a Jewish skeptic who said the only God that he could believe in is one who knows firsthand what it's like to be a Jewish child buried alive. Or who knows what it's like to be a Jewish mother watching her child die. The cross shows us that God is indeed able to empathize with us in our deepest pain. The Father shows his heartbreak here. The son, just as the Son has experienced suffering, so the Father experiences this heartbreak. I said there was two notes, right? Second note, the only other time that we see this word for tear, schizo, uh, we see it in Mark at least, here we see it with the temple curtain torn. Uh, we also see it at Jesus' baptism. In Mark 1.10, it says that just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, that he saw heaven being torn open, schizo there, and, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and you am, with you I'm well pleased. The curtain in the temple uh, was meant to symbolize the barrier between uh, heaven and earth itself, the divine realm and, and the realm of humanity. And at Jesus' baptism, it's like we see heaven rent open to show the Father's joy at this event. And at Jesus' death now, the temple curtain is rent open to show the Father's pain. And both events are accompanied by a revelation of Jesus' sonship. At his baptism, the voice says from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Now another voice testifies to his sonship. The centurion who says, Surely this was the Son of God. Now I already noted that uh, no one present would have been able to notice the curtain being torn. And being Roman, the centurion would not have even understood that significance anyway, what it meant. But it is immediately after that that he makes this confession that Jesus surely was the Son of God. Fascinating for a few reasons. One, again, he is uh, Roman, not Jewish. He would have had little understanding of Jewish concepts of Messiah or even divine relationships uh, happening here. But Romans had plenty of myths about gods and human offspring uh, from the gods who became great warriors. So maybe he could have had that in mind. But for the most part, the Romans, especially centurions, would have attributed that title, Son of God, to one person, to Caesar, the emperor. So for this centurion to call Jesus the Son of God, it's, almost, it's an admission that Caesar is not, that this person who he is seeing has just died on the cross. 
the Son of God. And even stranger, his confession is based on one experience only, Jesus' death. We have no reason to believe that he had witnessed Jesus' miracles, his teaching, or his authority. All that he had witnessed was the supernatural darkness of that moment. Jesus' humble strength, his faithful uh, lament, and his final submission and death. That's all the centurion has seen. This centurion's confession reveals God's power in weakness. The word that we often see translated in our Bibles as witness or testimony is the Greek word marturia, which is the same word that we get the word martyr from. The terms are interchangeable in the New Testament because to witness to Jesus' lordship assumed a willingness to give of your life. And as much as others tried to silence the gospel through persecution, we see that the willing testimony of Christ's followers uh, unto death, it only amplified their message even more. And in the same way, Jesus' death and humiliation, it stands here as the clearest and loudest witness to his authority and his love. The Roman centurion observed Jesus' death, and the only conclusion he could come away with was that he truly was the Son of God. It's almost like a reverse Wizard of Oz scenario, right? In the Wizard of Oz, uh, they tear back the curtain at the end, and the great and powerful Oz is revealed to be this tiny man who really is not that impressive at all. In Jesus' case, we see a, a curtain torn reveal what seemed like this humiliating death of a blasphemer and and criminal, that he is truly the one of supreme worth, the one of true strength. He is, in fact, the Lord of the universe. So what does this mean for us? Did anyone happen to watch the coronation of King Charles yesterday? A few people watched it. Uh, My wife got up with the kids like really early to turn it on and watch it. I slept in. I did not uh, get up with them at 6 o'clock to, to turn that on. Uh, but I did, once I finally woke up, it was still on and got to, to watch some of it. Um, I was struck as we were watching by uh, the beauty even of this the ch- church service acknowledging Christ over the, the monarchy and the kingship. That was really interesting, fascinating to me. I was kind of torn between, on the one hand, that that interesting aspect of it, and then on the other side of it, seeing all of the opulence and the uh, um, the gold-plated things and all of this, and the kingship, and thinking that's a little—it seems at odds with uh, the character of uh, of Christ. And uh, there was a moment in which uh, they were serving communion, and there was the Last Supper was uh, displayed on the this portrait behind the the chancel, and they're doing all of this, and I I was just struck at my own responses and and reactions to this, thinking like, all of this just doesn't seem that impressive in comparison to him. All of, like, earthly kingdoms and power and and all of this just seems dull in comparison to Jesus' surpassing worth. That he, the God of the universe, gave up everything, everything to show the how much he loves us. And he overcame the powers of death. It reminds me of Philippians 2, where Paul's singing this Christ hymn, saying that, that uh, he 
not considering himself to be one with God, gave uh, uh, equal to God, gave everything of himself, submitting himself even to death, death on a cross. And for that reason, he was exalted to the place that is above um, everything, his name above every other name, that at his name, the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is good. And perhaps that's enough for us this morning. Perhaps that's all we need, merely to worship. Because Jesus, our true King, has shown himself to be of surpassing worth and glory. That the curtain has been torn back and, and revealed that he is the Son of God. He is worthy. He is good. Let us worship him this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are who you are. When we see you, Lord, for who you truly are leads us to worship, respond. So give us the eyes to see in every moment. Not just now, but as we leave here, as we go throughout our week, would you help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you, to see you for who you truly are, to give you the honor and the worth and the glory that you are so deserving of. We are so thankful that your mercies are new every morning, that you continue to, to seek us out, to find us, to woo us to yourself, to reconcile us, that you are faithful to your covenant. We only pray, Lord, that we might be faithful to our end as well. Help us through the power of your spirit. I pray that in your name.